So we're doing a series on apologetics, both in the small group studies that are happening in the dorms and then here at Loft. Last week we talked about how to talk with people who are not yet believers. Tonight we're going to talk about the Bible and why we believe it. Next week uh, we're going to talk about Jesus and then we're going to talk about evil and then we're going to talk about the church and then it's spring break. That's right, that's right, that's spring break. So tonight we're talking about the Bible. And before we get into why we actually believe the Bible, I thought we'd actually start with what is the Bible, which may seem like an obvious question, but I don't think it always is. So I invite you to open the Bible to the table of contents. You should have Bibles around. Open it up to the table of contents. Now we think of the Bible and we speak of the Bible as a book, one book, but it's not actually. And I know that there are some of you who grew up and you went to Christian schools and you have a high level of biblical literacy and what I'm going to say in these next few minutes is going to seem like a, a really basic thing. But I want to remind you that most of the students we have here at Calvin do not come from Christian schools and may not have the level of biblical literacy that you have and so this is your opportunity to serve them in your listening. Yes, woo indeed. (laughs) So the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is 66 different books. 66 different books written by about 40 different people over about 1,500 years. Written in three different languages. The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures that tell the story of the relationship between God and his people Israel, the first chunk of the book, written mostly in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. The New Testament that tells the story of Jesus and what happened after he ascended into heaven is written in Greek. So if you go to seminary, you have to learn Hebrew and Greek so that you can read the Bible in the original languages. Don't let that put you off if you're thinking about ministry. It's going to be okay. If I can do it, and Paul can do it, and Joella can do it, Matt can do it, y'all can do it. Don't worry about it. But another important thing to know is that the Bible and the way the books of the Bible are organized is by genre, by type of literature. It's not put together chronologically. So if you're thinking, why is this prophet here talking about something that happened earlier in the book? That's because that did happen earlier in the book. So when you look at it, let's look at the books of the Old Testament. We're just going to do a quick little walkthrough. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are called the Pentateuch for five books, or the Book of the Law, or the Torah, or the books of Moses. All right? That's the beginning. That's when it all starts. Right? That's why, you know, Genesis in the beginning, right? Nod, humor me. Yes. Yes. And then God creates a people. He calls out a people, and they become the nation of Israel, and he gives them all these laws to follow about how to live. And if you've ever tried to, like, read through the Bible in a year, that's about when you get bogged down. Right? You hit the, the rules about when, you, you know, when you're going to build something, you got to do it this way, and this is unclean, and this is clean, and, you know, that's about when you're like, okay, you know, can we skip to, like, Philippians or something? So that's the law, the five books. And then from Joshua down to Esther, those are the books of history. Those actually do come in historical order. 
right? Those are the books of history that say what actually happened to these people. And when it says 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, that's because the story was too long to put on just one scroll. So they had two scrolls for Samuel, two for Kings, two for Chronicles. That's why there's a 1st and a 2nd. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are all called the writings or the wisdom literature or the poetry. Isaiah and Jeremiah are called major prophets because their books are really long. And then from there on down, from Lamentations down through Malachi, they're just all lumped together and called the minor prophets because their books are shorter. So it doesn't have anything to do with how important one book is, more the other. It has to do with, let's group them by type. I don't know why. That's just the way they did it. And then they did that for the New Testament. So the first four books of the New Testament are Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which tell the story of Jesus, right? And then we have a history book, the Acts of the Apostles, which says, well, what happened after Jesus ascended? Well, the church started, and this is what that looked like. And then, from Romans all the way through Philemon, those are all the letters that Paul wrote. He was very busy. He wrote a lot. Now, unlike in the Old Testament, when you have a a one and a two, and it means two different scrolls, in the New Testament, a first and a second means two different letters. Two totally different letters were sent, but to the same people. And in the case of Corinthians, at least, we know there's one more letter that we've never found because it's referred to in the letters that we do have. And so we have no idea, really, if there are more letters out there that Paul wrote. Would that be cool if we found one? They haven't found that yet. If they haven't found it yet, they're probably not going to find it. But Paul, big writer, loved to communicate most of the time, uh, especially in the latter part of his life, because he was in jail, and that was the way he could communicate with his people. From Hebrews through Jude, those are books, uh, letters written by other people. The non-Pauline letters, sometimes called the general or the pastoral letters. And then we have Revelation, which as we all know is an apocalyptic book because we studied it together last fall. So those are the genres of Bible. That's how the Bible is organized. And if you want to make your life at Calvin College, particularly for your religion classes, a little bit easier, I recommend you Google Books of the Bible Song. And learn all the books of the Bible by singing it. We talked about doing that tonight. We're not doing it tonight. But I know. But that's your fun fact homework. You can go Google books of the Bible song, and you can learn the books of the Bible in order, which will help you a lot when you're in your religion classes to look things up quickly. Now, one of the really remarkable things about this book that we have is that even though it's written in three different languages over 1,500 years by 40 different people, at least-ish, we think, it tells one story. No other book in the world does that. If you think about some of the holy books of other religions, often they are written by one person during that person's lifetime. Muhammad gets revelations over about a 20 to 23 year period, just gets revelations, writes the Quran. He's the guy. He wrote it. He had the revelation, wrote it. One guy, one book. Joseph Smith is told by an angel that there are these plates and he can translate them and he can write a book and he calls it the Book of Mormon. 
One guy, one book, one story. L. Ron Hubbard has an idea, has a vision, writes a book. Sociology gets born. One guy, one idea, one book, one crazy religion. Scientology. What did I say? Sociology? <laughs> Shout out to all the social majors. Big love, big love. That is so funny. Do we have a blooper reel? Because that should go on it. Scientology. Oh, that's why you're all looking at me blankly. That makes sense now. Scientology. Sociology can occasionally be crazy, right? Those of you. Not a religion, though. Let's just be clear. Sociology, not a religion. Scientology, a religion. Most of that was for me to clarify it in my own head. So when you're looking at other religions and you look at their holy texts, pay attention to how they got them. Because anybody can say, I've had an amazing vision from God, and here it is, and you should all do these things that I say. And if you have enough charisma, you can get people to actually follow you. Jesus never wrote a book. It wasn't part of his MO. But the story is all about him. It's all about him. Let's look at part of that story. Luke 4. Luke is one of the Gospels. It's found on page 835. The black books around you are the Bibles. Luke chapter 4, page 835. Now, at this point in Luke, um, we're early. Jesus has been born. He had that uh, thing in the temple with his mom. And then uh, he is baptized by John. He goes out. He's tempted in the wilderness. And he's had this time of prayer and fasting. And now he's coming to do ministry. So we started at Luke 4, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you'll say, Do all here in your hometown the things we heard you did at Capernaum. 
And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there are many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over the whole land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, led him up to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Now, why did they get so angry? Why did they get so angry? They got angry because this was their hometown boy. This was Joseph's son. This was the kid they had watched grow up. They knew him since he was this big. It's like whenever you go home and someone hasn't seen you in a while, like, oh, look at you. You're so big. You look like a grown-up. You're like, thanks, awkward, thanks. <laughs> they knew Jesus from when he was little, and they've been hearing reports that he's been doing really cool stuff out there. He's been teaching people, and he's been healing people, and they know that that's just the preamble. They know he's saving his good stuff for them. When he gets to Nazareth, he's really going to take care of them because these are his people. Like we're his posse. We are his squad. <laughs> we here in Nazareth, Jesus is one of us. So he's going to bring fame to us. He's going to bring attention to us. So we're ready. And Jesus says, uh, so I'm not going to do a show and tell. I'm, I'm not going to do any tricks for you. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm going to do at all. I'm actually going to go out and help other people. And they say, uh, are you kidding? Are you, are you kidding us right here? After all we've done for you? Like, this isn't how the Messiah thing is supposed to go. The Messiah thing is supposed to be like, you come into town... You do some cool things. You make us all victorious. You rule us like a king. The Romans get out. That's how it's supposed to work. And it starts with us. It starts with Nazareth. We get first dibs. This is how it's supposed to work. This is how the Messiah thing is supposed to work. This is how the whole divine entering into the human, that's how it's supposed to work. This is how God is supposed to work. This is how God is supposed to show up. We know. This is how God is supposed to show up. We know. This is what God's supposed to look like. We know. I think that one of the biggest problems people have with the Bible is not that it's one of the most easily verified ancient documents that we have in the world. They don't doubt the fact that it's been passed down with painstaking rigor from generation to generation and that the words that we have here are the words that Jesus read from Isaiah, the words that the people before, like they, they don't have a problem with that. They have a problem with a God 
that this book talks about. Because we're pretty sure we know how God's supposed to work. Imagine if you are a marketing major and your small group is given the project that your client is going to be God. And God comes into the meeting. He says, great to meet you. This is what I got. This is my story. This is what I want to put out there. And you start flipping through the pages and you're talking to your, your small group people. You're going, uh, oh. Okay, okay God. Um, so what we're thinking for your, your strongest brand is we're going to really lean into the all-loving and all-powerful. That's, that's what we're really going to pull out for you. We really think that's your strongest lead uh, as a divine. And so um, we're going to go for uh, all-loving and all-powerful. And when we look through uh, this book, there are times, if I could say this gently, there are just times when you're a little more of like the angry, smitey kind of God. And, you know, that's, that's just hard to sell. That's just hard for people. So if, if we could just go through your story a little bit and kind of clean up the rough edges, you know, I mean, you have this part back here when people disobey and like the earth swallows them up. That's, that's awkward. We're, you, you know, we don't, we don't get, we're just we're going to take that part out. And then uh, you, got this, uh, you got this thing later where the snakes go through and they bite everybody because that, that's, no, we're taking that out. That's, that's not good at all. Um, oh, this whole, um, this whole conquering the land thing, um, when you tell your people that they're supposed to kill all the other people, that, that really takes away from the all-loving part of your brand. Um, so we're going to take that out too. And then uh, later on, uh, when you have that whole like um, moment in the temple when you're driving everybody out with a whip, you, yeah, we're just going to take that part out. And that, that time when like you walk into town and there's a fig tree that's not in season anyway, and then you curse it for not bearing fruit and it's not in season anyway, like nobody gets that. <laughs> so we're just, we're just taking it out because it's, it's, it's just too complicated. And, and we know how God is supposed to be. We, we really want to bring out your all-loving and your all-powerful. So if it's okay with you, we're just, we're just give us some time and we're going to clean this up for you a little bit. And we'll, you know, we'll come back with a logo and a jingle and uh, some things we can really work with. There are people who have done this to the Bible. Marcion was a bishop, just said, let's just cut out the Old Testament. Awkward. Thomas Jefferson went through, cut out all the miracles. Said, you know, we are enlightenment people. We are people of reason. Let's just cut that all out. If there are people who've gone through and said, this book is messy and it's complicated and it reveals a really unknowable, mysterious, uncontrollable God, and that's really not what we're about. We would much prefer to have a God that we could kind of understand. And there are lots of parts in this book where the God who comes out is a God that we don't really understand. And there are a lot of times that our lives are a lot like this book. 
and they get messy, and they get complicated, and God does some stuff, and we're thinking, I I don't get that. I don't know why you did that. And sometimes, God does not line up with the God we want him to be, and we get angry and dismissive. And like the people in Nazareth, we're about ready to throw the whole thing off a cliff. It's like, I don't don't get you. You're not lining up. You're not revealing yourself the way I need you to be revealed right now. And that's when we need to go back and remember what Jesus says. He doesn't stand up and say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to impress you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to make your lives easier. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to solve all your problems. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to make God completely understandable to you. Jesus shows up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I'm about. If you want to know what God is about in the Bible, that's what God is about. It's so interesting in this story in the Gospel of Luke, that the people don't get angry when Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a messianic claim. That's a bold claim. That's saying, I'm it. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. They don't get angry at that. Because this is a people who know that the promises of God are fulfilled. They are expecting the promises of God to be fulfilled. They are expecting Scripture to be fulfilled. If someday you read through the whole Old Testament, what you find is that again and again and again, there are these people who prophesy things, and then those things happen. Like, all the time. You know, Elijah's like, yeah, you know, it's not going to rain anymore. doesn't rain right, for a long time. He prophesies a little later, he's like, you know, Jezebel, ooh, that's going to be a hard ending. She's going to die and be eaten by dogs. Seven years later, she dies, she's eaten by dogs. In 1 Kings 13, this is right after, uh, some of you know the history, there was one kingdom, Israel, it splits to be Israel and Judah, and one of the kings rises up, he's an early king, and he's a bad king, and he sets up all of these pagan altars around and starts worshiping Baal on all these pagan altars. And this prophet, who doesn't even have a name, he says, oh, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be this guy, uh, Josiah. And uh, he's going to come in, and what he's actually going to do is he's going to kill all of the priests of Baal on these altars. 
And the king doesn't like that very much, and so he says, seize him! And when he extends his arm out, his whole arm shrivels up. And then the prophet has to pray for his arm to not be shriveled up anymore. 300 years later, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23, 300 years later, Josiah, eight years old, inherits the throne. And then they're like paying off things in the temple. They're like doing a little fix-it job, and they discover the book of the law. They discover it. It's like we have this idea that the people of Israel follow the law, love the law, own the law. They misplaced it. <laughs> they lost it. This guy comes into the room. He's like, um, uh, uh, uh King, 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 King Josiah, um, you may, you may want to hear this. Read through the whole law, and Josiah's like, we are so in trouble. <laughs> and he goes through, and he does this huge purge of the land, and he, he just slaughters the prophets, and they're cleaning up all the, the remnants of everything, and as they're going through, they get to one particular tomb where they're cleaning things up, and he's like, well, who's buried in that tomb? And they say, well, um, that's actually the prophet who 300 years ago said that you would do this. He says, oh, well, let's leave that one alone. Let's, let's just not touch that one. Let's just leave it. Let's just leave it alone. And he tries to get the people back to the law. He tries really hard. And, and God says to him, you, you've done well. You've done, you're going to be okay. But let me tell you something. Everybody else has kind of blown it, so they're all going to be punished. Um, that's what happens, right? There's this... There's this turning back to the law, and then there's this turning away from it, and there's turning it from But through the whole story, Genesis, all the way to Revelation, there's this movement again and again where God shows up in his people's lives. And it is messy, and it is unpredictable, and so many times he comes and he's like, hey, would you be my prophet, and would you take this word and go out and do this thing? And the prophet's like, I, I don't want it. I, no. And he's got to, no, it's going to be okay. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go, and uh, you're going to talk to Pharaoh, and he's going to kind of give you some trouble about that. It'll take a little while, but then you're all going to come out and worship me on this mountain. So just go ahead and do it, would you please? That'd be great on a schedule. Again and again, God shows up in people's lives in this book, and it's messy, and it's complicated, and it doesn't make sense, but the whole story is about how God loves you so much that he sent his Jesus. The whole book is about that. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus. The promises that he made all the way along are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We believe the Bible because Jesus, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. All of God's promises are yes in Christ, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians. The whole story has been about Jesus it's easy to get lost in the weeds about, you know, was the flood an actual historical event or whatever. Come on! It's about Jesus. 
So when you're listening to sermons in a Christian worship service, if the preacher does not at some point make the turn toward Jesus and talk about the fact that because of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and because of the promise of his returning again, we get to live differently. If your preacher doesn't talk about Jesus in his or her sermon, walk up to them afterwards and ask for your money back. Because the whole reason we're here is because of Jesus. The whole reason for Scripture is to teach us about Jesus. So when you're doing your Bible study in your dorm, when you're doing your quiet time by yourself, when you're listening to Scripture sung through hymns, ask the Holy Spirit and say, use this to show me Jesus. Use this to show me Jesus. Because God doesn't just want you to read the biography. He wants you to meet the person. Jesus is a living person. And the whole story is about him. And the more we read the story and love the story and know the story, the more we understand Jesus. The more we understand sin and darkness, the more we understand why he had to die. The more we live in a world that is marked by uncertainty, the more we rely on the true and certain hope that just as Jesus fulfilled all the promises He will also fulfill the promises that have yet to be fulfilled. The ones about his coming back. The ones about the new heavens and the new earth. All the promises that we talked about all last fall. Jesus will fulfill the promises of God. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. I realized when I was preparing for this sermon that there was really nothing I could say that would convince you to believe the Bible. There are really great books out there that talk about its authenticity and why we should believe it, and they're great, and you can read them. But there's nothing I can say except the Bible shapes my life. And it teaches me about Jesus. And there's a lot I don't understand. And there's a lot more I'd like to learn. But when it comes to religions and their holy books, the one that gives us hope, the one that gives us grace, the one that gives us forgiveness, that's the one I need. That's the one I need because I need Jesus. We need Jesus. Read the book to know the person.